Hello, this is Tom Calvard, continuing this series of podcast episodes dealing with the chapters of my book recently published by Rutledge, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. This time I'm going to be talking about Chapter 5, Institutions. And with with this block of three chapters, where in the previous two episodes I've dealt with history and power, institutions closed this block of three chapters on defining aspects of critical perspectives. And like history and power, institutions, quite a daunting topic. Lots of people in academia and in research use the word institution and a lot of language that goes with that. From my point of view, I don't think it's that easy to define what an institution is, but I certainly think it's very interesting to contemplate what institutions involve or what they could be. For one thing, institutions, I would say, are not absolutely synonymous with the idea of an organisation. Organisations can embody institutional norms and values and what are sometimes called logics, but institutions are bigger and transcend any single organisation. And so people argue there aren't really that many institutions in our societies. They operate at the societal level and they're very stable in general and that society has a a set of these institutions. So the first thing is really just to, to think about maybe what some of these major institutions are and there's probably less than 10 depending on exactly how you define them or combine them together. I, in the book, discuss one author who who declares that there are nine major enduring institutions in our societies, and these are family, economy, medicine, religion, play, knowledge, politics, military, and law. So to me, that's already quite a powerful step, just thinking about what these institutions are and how they almost make up a sort of societal backdrop to the conditions of organisational life. There is a lot of jargon in the institutional literature. I think that's a bit of a shame. It probably puts some people off. There's also a lot of debate about how critical institutional perspectives can ever really hope to be. A lot of people describe institutions as very stable and conformist. The the word power isn't always used. People sometimes use the word legitimate to describe an institution. It's something that's just there and people take it for granted and accept it. But other people have argued that institutional views can be more critical They may need to start with power and look at some of the struggles people face within and across institutions, but this is an ongoing debate. I also note in this chapter that there isn't that much research that directly looks at institutions and diversity together, and I think this is both a shame and I also think it's quite surprising because clearly diverse people inhabit institutions, diverse people follow institutional forms of life and there may be some diverse views on how those institutions should be made up and how they should be 
configured. And so I go on with this chapter to, to note this surprise that there's a lack of research that really connects diversity with institutions in a direct way. I mean, you can, ironically, argue that diversity management itself has become quite formalised and quite institutionalised. And saying that something's institutionalised is in some ways a provocation. It's saying that it runs quite deep. It's got um, formalised practices. When we talk about institutions, we're often using language around habits, routines, enduring social activities, people's beliefs, values and categories. And in the middle of the chapter, as I have done in other chapters, I moved to the body of some of my arguments in terms of main directions and I propose, although there are probably many more links, that three main links between institutional theory and the idea of institutions and critical views of diversity in organisations are as follows. Institutional racism, institutional sexism, and finally, total institutions. So I start by looking at institutional racism and some of the people who've written about it in neighbouring social scientific fields like ethnic and racial studies. And it refers to this very broad idea that ideologies, practices and material forms of dominance are institutionalised in ways that perpetuate racism. The problem becomes, how do you challenge institutional racism? And there is this idea that it's, it's a real struggle to go deeply into these institutionalised patterns of racism and to try to reform them and locate them. Because people in the institution may not be entirely aware of them, they may not be entirely intentional, but certainly there will be degrees of conscious awareness and we have to trace the inequalities back to some of these deeply rooted institutional practices and assumptions. In the UK at least, the term was given more popularity after the murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993, a young black man who was murdered and the McPherson inquiry around the way the police failed to investigate and respond to this crime concluded that the police service was institutionally racist. And then this raises further questions about if the institution is, is flawed, how do you deal with questions of power, accountability, judgment and agency? I think institutional views are valuable because they provoke wider discussions about what kinds of institutions we want to have, how they treat people and subject them to unfair treatment or injustice as they move through an institution or, or have a contact with it. So 25 years or more on, nearly 30 years on from the Stephen Lawrence story in the United Kingdom, it still has something of a status as a wake-up call in British society to the idea that racism can be very long-standing and can manifest in different forms 
across institutions like the police in terms of, you know, leading to a casual, a culture of casual racism and maybe a certain acceptance of violent or discriminatory practices. And so it can help us to understand our societies and the institutions in them in terms of how we recognise forms of discrimination and prejudice. It doesn't make them any less complicated. And so if you want to reform an institution, it's it seems to me a difficult issue of knowing where to start. And some researchers have argued we need to go right back to the state, to the government, in many ways the, the sort of ultimate national institution. And so if you want to fight institutional racism, for example, this is part of a larger fight against state racism. And there's broader patterns of institutionalisation around how we treat asylum seekers with laws, deportations, stopping and searching people, detaining them in institutions for, um, for various purposes, and even moving to other areas of institutional life like schools and school systems. Because the state is what is sort of responsible for setting a, an example for what constitutes civil society in the social contract. Other researchers like Sarah Ahmed have done some really thoughtful, thorough work on institutional racism in the setting of higher education and how you can follow racism around an institution in documents, forms of legislation, group discussions, people working in various practitioner roles and other pieces of institutional machinery. And so you're effectively following diversity around an institution to trace some of the effects and evidence of things like racism. But the research on institutional racism is still fairly uneven and limited. And in some sense, it's excluded from a lot of journals and a lot of fields in a way that echoes the exclusion of race itself in our society. I move the chapter along on a parallel track by talking about institutional sexism and also some research that responds to these sorts of issues and calls itself feminist institutionalism. Institutional sexism takes me back a little bit to some of the things I discussed in the previous episode around gender, feminism and power. The work of Joan Acker, who's argued that gender is built into inequality regimes, has written some very powerful arguments around the gendered institutions in our society. The fact that entire institutional structures have historically been developed by men, are still currently dominated by men and are symbolically interpreted from the standpoint of men in leading positions. And so for a long, long time, many institutions have been and continue to be defined by an absence of women. She notes the only exception, and even here women are in a subordinate role, albeit a central one, is the family. So if this is the case then institutional sexism is a very pervasive force, clearly. And 
a sort of work needs to be done to challenge the logic and the interlocking patterns of these institutions. And there is some research in areas like the church and church organisations and women who become ministers and how they've changed the category of what it means to be an ordained woman minister in the church. There's also work on changing attitudes towards work-life balance policies and how these trigger a set of institutional considerations around wages, protections in the labour market, working hours, career paths and salary systems and that sort of thing. Universities have a double-edged quality because on the one hand they are quite unique institutional spaces where people can freely explore ideas about how our society and institutions work. But on the other hand, universities are themselves institutions and they are not free from institutional sexism themselves, far from it, in fact. So shaping feminist consciousness and communities to address contemporary forms of institutional sexism is a sort of ongoing struggle in universities and elsewhere. And we have this relatively slowly changing picture which is, in part, I think, something that can be understood through the corresponding idea of feminist institutionalism or institutional feminism, I suppose, would be a a closely related term turning the order of the words around. But the label is not used much, and partly it depends on joining the dots between feminism, economics and institutional analysis, which is quite academically demanding in some ways, But some researchers, such as Meryl Kenny and Fiona Mackay, working in political science, have talked about the the promising potential of connecting feminism and and institutionalism. Both perspectives are interested in history. They're interested in how political processes and organisational processes change in complex ways over time. And again, we can look at issues from the perspective of institutional sexism. The rules of the game in particular industries or walks of life. The political struggles that don't just sit outside organisations but actually affect people's ability to participate in them that could be changed in some of their fundamental conditions to be more gender gender just or gender equal. But the critical mass of institutional work and change agency is probably needed to bring the change about. I finish up by talking about total institutions, which I think is another critical area where you can link institutional thinking and diversity. They're often associated with the sociological work of Irving Goffman in the 1960s and 1970s, where a total institution was a place of residence and or work where a large number of like-situated people would be sort of cut off or living living and working separately from wider society for quite a significant period of time in quite an enclosed environment where their daily rounds of life and routines and activities would be formally controlled and administered. 
And in the 1970s, this took in lots of organisations like psychiatric hospitals, prison systems, women's prisons, public hospitals, college dorms, nursing schools, community mental health organisations, religious and other spiritual communes and organisations. But even beyond those, I would argue that the legacy of these types of institution live on. And that in the 21st century, I think they are a provocation about how variable our organisations are in how total some of their institutional mechanisms are. And I think this does connect with diversity. At its most, perhaps, repellent and offensive and harmful, we could say total institutions are a way of keeping minority groups that are stigmatised or unwanted by other segments of society keeping them segregated from the majority. And again, going back to power, very coercive and well-organised ways of erasing difference or marginalising it or segregating it and controlling its expression under rules and techniques. And it's no accident that scholars of power like Michel Foucault and others are interested in or drawn to what we might call total institutions. Stuart Clegg has provoked people looking at organisations or sought to be provocative in saying that management and organisation studies are quite ignorant about total institutions and don't really talk about them very much, which is shocking given the roles they've played in some of the worst crimes of humanity like the Holocaust. Modern examples also include US detention centres like Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. And again, there's this sort of link with diversity, which doesn't always appear explicitly, but I would argue that we, we should make the connection more explicitly. Some researchers have argued that state-owned Chinese organisations have some resemblance to a total institution, with their closed-off relationships between Chinese officials and workers, and some partial resemblance to a tightly controlled work camp or religious order. And then we have children put into boarding schools or industrial school systems that are maybe unwanted or neglected by other institutional parts of society. And then I would say in the 21st century, you could consider detention centres, again, refugee camps, these tightly organised institutional world, uh, in, uh, institutional worlds where you have diverse groups coexisting in parallel with organisational themes around how power is deployed and diversity and difference managed and organised. So I think more research is needed on total institutions, but I finished the section on them by also drawing a link with psychology going back to the 1970s and the Zimbardo-Stanford prison experiment. As some a sort of experiment in how easily people can inhabit institutions, identify with them and play roles accordingly. And these totalitarian institutional spaces and the psychological effects they have on us and how we maybe use them as a, a sort of quite shocking way of dealing with differences and diversity continue to, to sort of trouble us today or invite us to ask as diverse world citizens, 
what kinds of institutions we want to have. So I finish this chapter by looking at institutional theory and diversity going forward and just saying that we probably need more research that looks at the struggles that go on in institutions and how people try to work to change them. Some researchers have started to argue about combining institutional theory with other critical concerns. So Russ Vince, for example, has combined institutional ideas with psychoanalysis and systems psychodynamics, arguing that institutions have emotions, fantasies, desires and social defence mechanisms that are another layer of what goes on in institutions. So thinking about feelings such as shame, pride or pathos as things going on in institutions. And then also applying institutions to complex settings where lots of people are in lots of different positions engaging in unfolding relationships, interactions and events. So people are people have looked at the European Union, they've even looked at TV series like The Wire, popular TV series, to try and unpick the many institutional influences that affect diverse interactions in our societies. I also talk about the need to include morality in how we think about institutions and comparative emphasis on variations between and within countries around institutional mechanisms. And there is a lot of research on these things, but it tends to be scattered in different fields and doesn't always draw the links back to organisations and diversity. But I do conclude the chapter with some examples of specific papers and pieces of research that look at institutional struggles among LGBTQ communities trying to secure institutional change by partnering up with local government agencies and equality stakeholders. Again, there are examples from the church and church denominations with LGBT ministers trying to reconcile their identities and institutional roles with some of the more exclusionary traditions in those institutions. We can also talk about, again, things emanating from politics and public life, the film industry, uh, the cinema sector, other creative and cultural industries, and how diverse minorities receive funding to make films and other cultural artefacts about institutional racism and sexism and other issues. And then there are more corporate pieces of research, but still deal with institutional fields, such as the selection of executives to work on board, board, on board structures and in boardrooms, and the lack of gender diversity in boardrooms on top company boards. And the idea that people are engaging in institutional work when they try to change how these institutions look. And often the work is distributed amongst many people who have to figure out maybe how to cooperate and pool resources and work together to achieve a wider institutional change. The final, uh, a final example I give is the example of disability politics. And again, the idea of total institutions 
features in this discussion because although many disabled people in many societies are generally no longer kept segregated in state institutions, the deinstitutionalization process has not necessarily been totally completed. The transition to greater integration and citizenship is unfulfilled. And the same could be said around post-colonial relations and decolonization in different national contexts. So people can say that, to some extent, problematic aspects of diversity and inclusion have been deinstitutionalized, or we're experiencing a post-institutional era. But that does not mean to say that there are not still struggles around how our institutions integrate minorities without subjecting them to violence, control or marginalisation. And perhaps the most institutionalised ideas of all of relevance here are the idea that there is some sort of ideal citizen or ideal worker that features in our institutional lives and our institutional norms. So in conclusion, I note that there's probably many more connections that can be made between institutions and diversity. And again, they're not always as critical as they could be, but maybe connecting with diversity is a way to mutually enrich that critical connection between institutions and organisations and power. I think institution institutional views are valuable, as I've said, because they bring societal context back into focus. They show that we're highly constrained by these large institutional structures that have been around for decades in public life. So whilst it may not be totally accepted as a critical perspective, a recent paper by Alveson and Spicer has suggested that neo-institutional theory today is perhaps in the middle of something of a midlife crisis and that it needs to address its critical relevance to organisations by sharpening its focus a bit more and reflecting about how it can more precisely relate to other areas of research. And so my hope in providing a chapter in this book on it is that by connecting institutional theories with diversity and inclusion and equality will provide some of that critical stimulation for moving uh, these sorts of fields forward. So thanks for listening to this episode. Next time I'll be back um, in a new part of the book, in the body of the book, talking about a series of chapters in part three, which I've called Elaborating on Critical Themes Concerning Diversity in Organisations. And that starts with chapter six on the topic of intersectionality. So thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.